I just got home from a six-week tour in Europe. Had gigs in Norway, Holland, Belgium, England, Wales, and the tour ended down in San Sebastian, Spain. I flew in on a propeller plane, crazy winds, the thing was bouncing every which way and was not the, the most fun flight I've had, but uh, landed safely. I played a sold-out gig, everybody was just packed in. It was a historic jazz club been around for a long, long time. I'm told that Dizzy Gillespie and a lot of other jazz legends had played there. So it felt great to get to stand there where Dizzy Gillespie stood and get to play my songs for the people. It was just a great crowd and it was a great way to end the tour. The promoter was wonderful to me, just a really good guy. He told me a great story that I'm gonna do everything I can to make it turn into an episode of this show. Hopefully sometime in the next year you might hear me tell that story. But I went back to the hotel room and I slept with the windows open. There are a few things that I enjoy more than sleeping and smelling the ocean just blowing in. It's just one of those things that as a Midwesterner who's landlocked, it's an exotic, strange thing for me and I enjoy it. But the next morning I woke up and I only had a few hours before I had to fly out. and It was raining pretty hard. But I'd never seen San Sebastian, so I wanted to see what it looked like. I walked down by the ocean and saw the waves crashing against the rocks and was thinking about lay down your weary tune. The ocean wild like an organ played, seaweed woven strands. I walked back in and it's just beautiful, beautiful old town. Enjoyed walking in the rain and I came upon this, this public square. It's a, probably about the size of a football field. And on all four sides, there were buildings that went up maybe five or six stories high. And there were big balconies off of each building. Each balcony had a number just above it. So that got my curiosity going. And I found out that that used to be the bull ring for the town of San Sebastian, where the bullfights were held. And the balconies were attached to a house. People lived there. If you lived... In this house, you had to pay a tax for your balcony so you could watch the bullfights. And if you chose not to, then you had to open your house up to anyone willing to pay the tax so they could walk through your house, sit on the balcony, and watch the bullfights. And I'm not sure that would fly very well back in Indiana where I come from. I know I wouldn't like it very much. But uh, luckily, they don't have bullfights there anymore. But I had a long flight home, and after six weeks on the road, I can honestly say it feels great to be back on Mount Renraw. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. 
This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Chris McKinney. Chris is the curator of the Ursae Guitar Collection, and you can find out everything you need to know about Chris at facebook.com slash hollisbrown. Chris was nice enough to give me, my buddy Todd, Amy, and my buddy Sergio Webb a tour of Ursae's guitar collection in Indianapolis. But Jim Ursae owns a lot of amazing historic guitars and drums, just a lot of instruments that were owned by very famous people. But one that stood out more than any other to me was this Gibson SG that was owned by George Harrison. And it played beautifully. It was just a beautiful, beautiful instrument. My buddy Sergio Webb, who's a great guitar player and a great friend of mine, he played it and he fell in love with it. We talked about this guitar for months afterwards when we would get together and just kind of talk about how it felt and uh, just the mojo on this thing. I say that just so that you'll get an idea what a special instrument this is. But I went back to Indianapolis quite a few months later and I asked Chris if he would be willing to tell some stories about that guitar. And he was nice enough to, to go along with it. So we met up in a hotel room in Southport, Indiana, just south of Indianapolis. It's a strange feeling to be in a hotel room in the city that you grew up in. But Chris is a really good guy, and I enjoyed spending time with him and chatting with him. We have a lot of the same friends. We have a lot of the same history. We grew up in the same area, and I just enjoyed being around him. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Here's Chris McKinney. George Harrison owned a uh, 1964 Gibson SG uh, standard. Exactly how he came by it, I'm not sure, um, but he acquired it in 66. It was his main guitar from 66 to 69. Um, and it was used uh, extensively throughout the uh, the Revolver sessions and uh, into the uh, the White Album uh, sessions. And not just uh, did George play it; uh, John played it uh, as well. There's you know documentation of of John you know using it on a few tracks throughout you know the recording of the White Album. I've read some Beatles experts say that uh, this might be the guitar George used. As many as any other or more than any other. Is that true? Yeah. You know, it was during that period, you know, that was a prolific period for them when they kind of became more of a studio band than a, you know, touring band, obviously. During that period, he claimed it to be his his main guitar. And so a lot of uh, the uh, Revolver uh, sessions, you know, contain that guitar. Um, again, not just in George's hands, but also uh, Paul played it uh, as well. Track by track, I'm not exactly sure, but, you know, it's, it's well documented that it was used, you know, on a lot of recordings. Well, one track we do know about is it was Paperback Rider. Right. In Rain. And uh, that, was the, that was the double A-side single, if I recall, that came out. But anyway, you know, like in, those, in the, the video for Rain, you know, he's, he's playing the, the, that guitar. And in the Paperback Rider video or promotional clip, he's playing that guitar. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's like, you know, back then, it's really red. You know, it's, it's you know, cherry. cherry red. Yeah. You know, and now when you see it, it's like, you know, it's, it's you know, kind of a, you know, a much lighter red, you know, but several years under its belt, you know, at this point. To me, 
it's my favorite guitar in his collection. Just knowing the, the, the songs that it was recorded, you know, used to record, um, and, you know, that they're, you know, just ingrained in, you know, the psyche of people the world over, not just America or England or wherever. I mean, you know, that's just, you know, the Beatles are a you know, global phenomenon, and this guitar was a, a large part of that. When you think of Beatles guitar riffs, I mean, Paperback Rider, that's right up there. Right. That opening, opening lick is, you know, as good as it gets. My buddy Brian Henneman, who's an SG freak, was kind of saying he thought that the, the opening lick there, the Paperback Rider, was about as exciting a guitar part as there is. Right. I'm with him on that. <laughs> you know, it is. It's, you know, it's one of those things, it's like as soon as you hear it, you know, you know exactly what it is, and, and, you know, it just has a very distinctive tone. And, uh, you know, that guitar, to me, is really interesting because, uh, you know, at that point, those guys had equipment just being thrown at them from every manufacturer. You know, please play our equipment. Please just get your picture taken with it, you know. And that guitar, the input jack, at some point, uh, someone had come along and, you know, stepped on the cable probably and broke the input jack out of it, like SGs are notorious for doing. And it's been repaired. Uh, instead of just pitching it, which they could have easily done, they had the uh, the input jack, you know, repaired. You know, there's a nice little insert of mahogany right where the uh, the input jack is, you know. You know, I just think that's really cool. It's like I got to talk to um, a uh, design guy at Gibson Guitars um, when I, wor I worked for Gibson for about three years. He got to go over uh, Frank Zappa's uh, SG, you know, whenever they were going to do the Zappa edition. You know, he was looking at it, and there were some things like it similar, you know, that, you know, it had been repaired, you know, because it had been damaged, you know, and, and it's just really cool that, you know, an artist, whenever they find that tool that they like, that's theirs, you know, it's like, rather than getting a new one, no, I want this one fixed. You know, this is it. I know this one. The point you made about the Beatles getting just a ton of free gear at that time, there's no chance that this was given to, the, to George Harrison. You say he got it when it was a couple of years old? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think it would have been a freebie from the manufacturer. It may have been, you know, but I'm thinking with it being a couple of years old, you know, I would think that, you know, a manufacturer would probably want to, to push the absolute newest, you know, latest, greatest on them so they could promote what they're currently offering, not something a couple of years old at that point. I don't know if he got it in the States or in England. You know, that would be interesting to know how it, you know, made its way around. The ledger uh, from you know Gibson's out there and known, um, but haven't been able to track down the uh, the store it was shipped to. Um, you know from them. You know I can see you know the you know the date it was you know built and assigned its serial number and everything, but then you don't see where it was actually shipped to from that point. Have you memorized the serial number? Two two seven six six six. Yeah, the um, uh, the guitar it was at Apple, you know, in in the uh, the Abbey Road, uh, you know, studios there, or not Apple, but in, in Abbey Road. And George was the most spiritual, you know, of the Beatles and everything. And and for him, you know, instruments were, you know, they were important, you know, things. And if he had a friend and he wanted to give them a gift of of meaning, you know, from him, it would be an instrument. Um, you know, he gave uh, Eric Clapton, you know, guitars. He gave uh, uh, Delaney Bramlett, uh, you know, guitars. 
Um, and he gave uh, this uh, red SG to Pete Ham from Badfinger. Badfinger, I th think, was the first band signed to the Apple uh, label. And George was involved, you know, in, in working with them. And, uh, you know, I think he and Pete, you know, really, you know, struck up a good friendship. Uh, so he gave the guitar to, to Pete Ham from Badfinger. And, uh, you know, then Pete used it from, you know, like 69 to 74. Not only have we heard that guitar on timeless Beatles recordings, but we've also heard it on timeless Badfinger recordings, you know, which is just amazing to me. Think of all the, the recordings out there that, you know, are in people's collections that, you know, that contain that guitar, you know. He used it on Baby Blue. Mm -hmm. So when you're watching the end of Breaking Bad, right. the finale, right. you're hearing that guitar. It's, it's funny you mention that. That's exactly whenever I never I never got into that series, but my wife did. And uh, I was watching the, you know, the last episode with her and they start playing, you know, that track. And I was like, I know that guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched any of this show, but I know that guitar. <laughs> it's beautiful when you when you play it. You know, I played that particular lick, and there's no mistaking it. You realize that's the guitar. Even though it doesn't have the fuzz box on it, it's that guitar. Right. We, in the collection, we have a, a harp tone 12-string, which was uh, a small company that got an upstart company from the East Coast in the Jersey area. And, um, and they gave George some guitars, you know, for him to try out. And, you know, this 12-string... You know, whenever you listen to it, you know, it's unmistakable that it's, you know, some of the, the, the guitar parts on All Things Must Pass. You know, it's like a fingerprint or something like that. You know, it's just, you know, too close for it to be, you know, maybe. And, and we know that it was around during those sessions. And like, you know, that guitar was, you know, also used at the concert for Bangladesh and stuff like that. So, you know, it's interesting, like a lot of the, the instruments that they used, um, I mean, the SG obviously is a legendary guitar. Let's say like their acoustic choices were not the best, you know, instruments a lot of times, you know, but they recorded well. And, you know, I think that's what it came down to is just, you know, whenever, you know, whenever it's in my hands and going to tape, it sounds good, you know, and that's what they wanted. Yeah, if anyone's going to know what sounds good, you know, on a record, I'm sure it's George Martin. According to Gibson.com, it was used on uh, Day After Day, uh, Baby Blue, and uh, no matter what. <laughs> For some reason, I've never, I've never learned the title of that song. I just know that song. Right. You my know, entire life. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, there's tons of songs for me like that. It's like I've never been a good name <laughs> person when it comes to songs. You know, it's amazing with people's, uh, you know, the, the the Beatles and you know fans out there. It's like. If you don't have your facts and figures exactly right, <laughs> they'll let you know. <laughs> you know, so after George giving the guitar to, to Pete, when a Beatle gives you a guitar, I'm sure, you know, it's an a amazing thing. And, you know, it became Pete's, you know, I'm sure if, if it wasn't his favorite guitar, it was one of his favorite guitars because he had it, you know, obviously all through his, you know, working career there. And um, if you look online or on YouTube, just about everything you pull up, he's playing that guitar. Yeah. I, mean, I think it just became his, his main guitar during that period. You know, I mean, like you said, I, I can't really, you know, recollect seeing too many pictures of him with anything else but that guitar, you know, after he acquired it. He had it, you know, obviously through, you know, the rest of his career. And then, you know, sadly, you know, we know Pete, you know, passed away in 70, 
four. But prior uh, to his death, he had given the guitar uh, to his brother, John uh, Ham, uh, to hang on to for him. You know, I think Pete maybe had a premonition of, you know, what was coming. And uh, so he gave the guitar to, to his uh, brother, John. And, uh, you know, John had it and put it away for, I think, 28 years or so. How it resurfaced was the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was uh, wanting to do a, a Bad Finger exhibit, you know, on, on the band. And so they got in touch with Pete's brother, John, and said, you know, do you have anything of your brother's that we might be interested in? It's like, well, I've got this old guitar that he gave me to keep for him. It's been under the bed for, you know, 20 plus years. And, <laughs> you know, that's literally how it resurfaced. You know, otherwise, you know, it probably would have just been, still been in John's, you know, under John's bed. <laughs> Um, you know, when it went to auction, I was I was working with Jim on it, but at that point I wasn't a full time employee of his. You know, I uh, I would help him with the collection, but you know, I've al I've always let him know when things are going to happen and and so on and so forth. And so he had a, a representative uh, there at uh, Christie's uh, in New York whenever the auction was you know going going on. The guitar, the closing price I think was five hundred and sixty seven thousand. Which, you know, is obviously a huge figure, you know, but whenever Jim sets his mind to something, you know, like this, it, it generally doesn't get past him. His max bid on it was a million six, if need be. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, so he was, yeah, he was, you know, he, as, he was he's, all in. as he says, you know, I, I got, I, I got my gunpowder prepared for this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're loaded. <laughs> You know, and he he was amazed that it went so cheap. You know, even again, it doesn't. You know, I know it's a big figure, but you know, he he was anticipating it being you know a million plus guitar. Um, you know, giving its pedigree because you know Beatle instruments typically do not make their way out to the you know to the public very often because, and really, the most of the ones that have ever ever have have been George's because of his you know his uh, desire to give them as gifts to people. Um, you know, the rest of them are all pretty much still in the families and will probably always be because, you know, obviously their, their families are never going to need any money um, and their family heirlooms, you know, and, and then, you know, in the case of both John's kids and George's kids, they play, you know, so naturally, you know, they're going to want to, you know, keep dad's you know, instruments, you know, I would. We have, from what I understand anyway, talking to Andy Babuke, who's the uh, considered to be the foremost expert on Beatles gear, with his books, you know, Beatles gear, uh, and he's been a big resource for me, you know, over the years because those guys, the actual band members, they were excited about that project, his book, and so they kind of gave him, you know, carte blanche to their to their, you know, warehouses, you know, with their stuff, and so he knows where it's all at, you know, and, and what's real and not, and it's been very helpful, you know, with me in, in documenting things that people have come to us with, you know, hey Andy, somebody says this is was used on you know, this session or that session. No, it wasn't, man. Here's, here's the deal. <laughs> but, you know, that's been, you know, he's been very helpful with, with that. But, you know, the, uh, uh, but from what he says, though, you know, of real used instruments that we have, you know, the most outside of the families, you know, we have Ringo's uh, first, you know, Black Oyster Pearl kit and, uh, you know, George's, you know, SG and, and John's, uh, Gretsch and John's Rickenbacker, not the main Rick, but we have the one that, that, you know, that he received as a 
substitute for the main rig. But, you know, in, in those we all know were used, you know, either in live performance or recording. And that's really what that's all that's out there. The rest of it's still, you know, in the families. So you were nice enough to to bring me over to the to Jim's office, you know, a couple of few months ago. Sure. Me and my friends and uh I got to play this SG and it is just a beautiful, beautiful instrument. It's the kind of there's instruments that are old and nice, you know, and you say, look at that. But this is actually one, a player's instrument. It's right. obvious when you play it that people have made some beautiful music. Even if I didn't know the pedigree, you would know this is a for real beautiful instrument. Right. You know, and it's interesting how that, how that, how that happens to me. It's like, you know, you know, one guitar is a, a boat anchor and another one's a, you know, a, a wonderful instrument, you know, and and then they may have came down the, you know, the, the assembly line in, in the same you know, weak, you know, but one of them, for whatever reason, you know, this had that, you know, character to it. I hate to keep dragging Brian Henneman into this, but he <laughs> has recently just completely been obsessed with Gibson SGs, and he's tried his whole life to buy one that he thinks is a good one, and he's bought a lot of them, and he's finally found one that's a really good one. So I guess there's a certain amount of inconsistencies with them, but the ones that are good are ridiculously great. And this appears to be one of those. I would agree with that. Yeah, you know, that's something. And even with all of our modern machinery and technology, Gibson's still very inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I love him dearly. I worked for him for three years. But, you know, uh, you know, even today, it's like you can pick up a, a and, it, and it doesn't have to be just in the solid bodies. You know, it's the same thing. You know, you pick up a J200, you know, and this one's amazing. And then this one's, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you know, but, you know, that's, you know, this kind of nature of the beast, though, I guess, you know, that, that, that you know, you get the, the right density and materials to all line up together occasionally, and you have that kind of perfect storm periodically. When I, I worked for Martin Guitars, too, for about five years, and um, um, my old Martin rep, uh, his line was, you know, he'd been with them for, gosh, 20 years, and uh, uh, his line was is that he's like, you know, I think every instrument we make is good, but maybe like 10% are great, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, yeah, I can see that, you know, because, you know, you can't go through and handpick everything and, and try and make 50,000 instruments a year, you know, so you do have those little cottage people out there that are doing that kind of stuff, and that's cool, but you're also going to pay dearly for it, though, too. <laughs> I met Jim in 1997. Um, I used to work for a guitar shop uh, here in Indianapolis, and one day he just wandered in. We just really hit it off. I, whenever you know people ask me like, "What's he like?" It's like we're both kind of beatnik hippies that happen to be born in the wrong generation. We like all the same kind of music, the same writers, cinema, you know, the whole thing. You know, and he's. And he's into all of that, you know, I mean, your typical bohemian, you know, artist type personality that happens to own an NFL team. So he wandered in the store, you know, he's like, I'm thinking about starting a guitar collection. You know, is that something that you can help me with? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's something I can help you with, <laughs> you know. And uh, uh, so that day uh, he bought a, a really nice new acoustic guitar. And um, the next day on the dock um, at the store, there was a, a colt jacket and a shirt. Uh, for me with, you know, a note, thanks for the help, Jim, uh, you know, which I thought was really cool. And from there, you know, it just kind of just kept, you know, rolling along. 
a few months later, um, Martin was coming out with a, uh, Stephen Stills signature model, uh, guitar. And he's really good friends with Stephen Stills. Um, you know, not just acquaintances. I mean, you know, Stephen, whenever he comes to town may stay at Jim's house instead of staying in a hotel, you know, so I called his office, you know, and said, Hey, uh, you know, Jim may be interested in one of these guitars. And the secretary or assistant at that time was like, okay, thank you. Click, you know, and that was it, you know, and, and didn't hear anything back. And, uh, the guitar that he had bought, um, he had it sent back into the store to have new strings put on it. And um, while I had it there, I wrote a note, you know, saying, you know, Martin's making this guitar for your buddy Stephen. If you have any interest, let me know. You know, I'll get one on order for you. And so the guitar went back. I, I took that note and shoved it in the strings of the, of the guitar, knowing no one else is going to look at that except for him. And the next day, that same secretary calls and says, Jim wants to order this Stephen Stills Martin guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Which was really cool, you know, and from there, you know, just kept going from there. But uh, at this point, you know, I mean, I'd known him for a few years and been helping him with his, with his collection. And he's, you know, a really trusting person because, you know, he calls and says, hey, you know, I want you to go to the house and, and get the Harrison SG and, uh, take it down to Bloomington. Uh, Kayla and my daughter's uh, having a, is taking a Beatles class down there and I want to take it and let the, the class see it. You know, so uh, I go up there and, you know, in my beat up old car and load it in the back of the car. It's worth like, you know, I don't, I don't know what the figure would be, how many of that car it would be worth, <laughs> you know, uh, and load it in the car and take off down to, uh, to Bloomington and, uh, quietly kind of carried in the back of the room and, and uh, sitting there and class is about to, to finish up. And uh, Jim's like, Oh, I, you know, I think it might have something here you might want to see. And uh, we broke it out and took it up to the front of the class. And the, the teacher was just thrilled, you know, that, Oh my gosh, you know, this is a Beatles class. This is a Beatles, yeah, this is in a Beatles class. You know, we're taking George Harrison's SG as show and tell. <laughs> you know, which was awesome. So I'm sure Kaylin got a few extra points that evening, I would hope. <laughs> well, I appreciate you meeting up with me here in the hotel. Yeah. Does it feel really weird to be in a hotel room in Indianapolis? Uh, a little bit, yeah. It feels weird know. for me. Yeah, you know, I've... Uh, when I was working for the, the guitar makers, I traveled a bunch, you know, doing that. That was my job was to go and, and uh, um, work with the staff in the, in the stores on the new product. You know, so I spent many nights in the hotel rooms, you know, but yeah, not in Indianapolis. I can just go home in Indianapolis. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> a weird feeling, but thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Chris for meeting up with me in that hotel room in Southport, Indiana. You can find out everything you need to know about Chris at facebook.com slash hollisbrown. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, 
or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.